Happy New Year. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Editor-in-Chief of Annals of Internal Medicine, and I'm looking forward to telling you about the first 2023 articles published in Annals. I hope everyone who celebrated a holiday over recent weeks had a happy, healthy one. The first article reports a cost-effectiveness analysis comparing direct oral anticoagulants or DOACs to low molecular weight heparin when treating cancer-associated thrombosis. Cancer-associated thrombosis is associated with an almost two-fold increase in mortality compared to patients with cancer but without thrombosis. These patients are also at higher risk for recurrent venous thromboembolism, which has been shown in previous research to be associated with an 80% more spent on healthcare costs. Low molecular weight heparin is considered the cornerstone of treatment for cancer-associated thrombosis, but DOEX have more recently come into clinical use. Researchers from the UC Davis Comprehensive Cancer Center and University of Cincinnati conducted a cost-effectiveness analysis of four possible interventions for the treatment of cancer-associated thrombosis over the lifetime of a 60-year-old patient. Interventions included anoxaparin, apixaban, adoxaban, and rivaroxaban. In their analysis, the authors found that apixaban was the least costly anticoagulant and was more effective than either low-molecular-weight heparin or adoxaban. However, rivaroxaban was slightly more effective than apixaban with an incremental cost-effectiveness ratio of $493,246 per quality-adjusted life year. However, when the prices of drugs from GoodRx were modeled, rivaroxaban became the most cost-effective using contemporary threshold for societal willingness to pay. The authors note their findings demonstrated a stark difference between the real-world cost of DOEX and the drug prices that Americans pay. The authors also add that the most clinically effective and cost-effective DOAC depends on a patient's clinical characteristics, location of cancer, and side effects, as well as the relative cost of each DOAC. An accompanying editorial from authors at the Yale School of Medicine notes that while this analysis may underestimate the cost-effectiveness of apixaban in the real world, it shines by showing the benefit of aligning drug costs with effectiveness. The authors highlight the possibility of future drug price negotiations in light of passage of the Inflation Reduction Act and note that the important uses of anticoagulants demonstrated in this analysis would make the drug class contenders for value-based price benchmarks. A common challenge in clinical medicine involves trying to predict the future for our patients. How likely are they to develop a disease? If they do, what are the chances one therapy will result in better outcomes than another? What is the risk of succumbing to the disease? Consequently, risk prediction models frequently appear in annals and other clinical journals. Predicting risk is no simple task, and risk prediction models require thorough validation to assess their performance. A new research and reporting methods article describes measures to evaluate predictions and the potential improvement in decision-making from survival models based on Cox proportional hazards regression. The authors use the prediction of the composite outcome of recurrence and death in patients following surgery for breast cancer and propose a set of performance measures for transparent reporting of the validity of predictions from survival models. The article is useful to those developing a prediction model and those who want to be a more knowledgeable consumer of those prediction models developed by others. High-quality systematic reviews require substantial time, resources, and energy from author teams sometimes taking years to complete. Consequently, rapid reviews have been proposed to shorten the completion timeframe of a systematic review, and to date, during the pandemic, more than 3,000 rapid reviews were published. 
Rapid reviews abbreviate, omit, or simplify traditional systematic review methods to address knowledge needs in a timely fashion. However, there can be adverse consequences to the shortcuts taken. Next is a commentary that highlights the dark side of rapid reviews and the confusion and dangers they can present to evidence-informed decision-making. Prior studies comparing first-trimester medical and procedural-induced abortion have suffered from selection bias, inadequate statistical power to assess serious adverse events, and limited accounting for confounding by indication. Starting in 2017, with prescription, patients seeking to terminate pregnancy can obtain mifepristone, misoprostol, cost-free in outpatient pharmacies across Ontario, Canada. This enabled the authors of the next article to compare the short-term risk of adverse outcomes following early induced abortion by medication versus by procedure among women in Ontario who underwent first trimester induced abortion. During the study period, 39,856 women were dispensed mifepristone, misoprostol, as an outpatient, and the authors compared them to two different groups. The first comparison was to 65,176 women who had a procedural abortion at less than 14 weeks gestation in an outpatient setting that was not hospital-affiliated. The second comparison was to 8,861 women who had a procedural abortion in an ambulatory hospital-based setting at less than or equal to nine weeks of gestation. The primary outcome was any serious adverse event within 42 days of the abortion. Serious adverse events included severe maternal morbidity, end organ damage, intensive care unit admission, or death. The mean age of women was 29 years, and this was the first pregnancy for 33%. 6% resided in rural areas and 25% in low-income neighborhoods. In comparison one, serious adverse events occurred in 3.3 per 1,000 women within 42 days of medication abortion and 1.8 per 1,000 women after procedural abortion. In comparison two, these rates were about 3.3 per 1,000 in both groups. Limitations of the study include that a woman dispensed mifeprostol, misoprostol may not have actually taken the medication, and exact gestational age was not known in all cases. In summary, the study found that serious adverse events, while slightly higher following medication abortion, were very low following both medication and procedural abortion. Editorialist Dr. Carol Hogue from Emory writes, This study, quote, provides clear evidence that self-managed abortion is safe and effective. Thanks to Ontario's laws and policies regarding free access to all types of abortion in the first trimester, coupled with an electronic medical record system that allows for longitudinal assessment, the authors have provided a rigorous population-based study, end quote. Also published on January 3rd are the American College of Physicians' Clinical Guidelines on the Treatment of Osteoporosis and an accompanying systematic review on which the recommendations were based. If you go to annals.org, you can watch a brief video summarizing the review in addition to reading both the systematic review and the clinical guideline. The guideline updates the 2017 American College of Physicians' recommendations on pharmacologic treatment of primary osteoporosis or low bone mass to prevent fractures in adults. The ACP Clinical Guidelines Committee used the GRADE method to assess the strength of available evidence. The recommendations are as follows. ACP recommends that clinicians use bisphosphonates for initial pharmacologic treatment to reduce the risk of fractures in postmenopausal females diagnosed with primary osteoporosis. This is a strong recommendation based on high certainty evidence. 
ACP suggests that clinicians use bisphosphonates for initial pharmacologic treatment to reduce the risk of fractures in males diagnosed with primary osteoporosis. This is a conditional recommendation based on low certainty evidence. ACP suggests that clinicians use the rank ligand inhibitor denosumab as second-line pharmacologic therapy to reduce the risk of fractures in postmenopausal females diagnosed with primary osteoporosis who have contraindications to or experience adverse effects of bisphosphonates. This is a conditional recommendation based on moderate certainty evidence. ACP suggests that clinicians use the rank ligand inhibitor denosumab as second-line pharmacologic treatment to reduce the risk of fracture in males diagnosed with primary osteoporosis have contraindications to or experience adverse effects of bisphosphonates. This is a conditional recommendation based on low certainty evidence. ACP suggests that clinicians use romosuzumab or teriparatide followed by bisphosphonate to reduce the risk of fractures only in females with primary osteoporosis who have a very high risk of fracture. These are conditional recommendations based on moderate and low certainty evidence. Finally, ACP suggests that clinicians take an individualized approach regarding whether to start pharmacologic treatment with bisphosphonate in females over the age of 65 who have osteopenia to reduce the risk of fracture. This is a conditional recommendation based on low certainty evidence. In an accompanying editorial, Dr. Susan Ott from the University of Washington provides a cautionary note. She writes, quote, the data about bisphosphonates may seem overwhelmingly positive, leading to strong recommendations to use them to treat osteoporosis, but the decision to start a bisphosphonate is actually not that easy. A strong recommendation should be given only when future studies are unlikely to change it. Yet, data already suggests that in patients with serious osteoporosis, treatment should start with anabolic medications because previous treatment with either bisphosphonates or denosumab will prevent the anabolic response of newer medications. Fewer fractures are seen when the initial treatment is an anabolic medicine, which decreases bone volume and not just bone density. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I wish you health and happiness in 2023. Come back in two weeks to learn about what Annals publishes next. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson, Andrew Langman, and Bernie Turner for their technical support.